You know, it's a story that brings in the really dramatic disruptions just as recently as, say, over the 20th century. World wars, uh, rise of fascism, nuclear age, and things that really were cataclysmic and not just, um, uh, you know, a sort of bump in the road. And so we see one of the things that I find really, frankly, inspiring as an historian, let alone as, as a working scientist, is to see, you know, ordinary people um, really doing extraordinary things in difficult circumstances. And sometimes against really quite difficult odds, you're nudging, nudging this collective body of knowledge forward. They don't get all the answers. They don't live to see, you know, the, the, the final information we all dream of. And yet they, as a community, uh, they can kind of cobble some things together, get confidence on here and, and clear up some confusions there. And, and hand that off to the next generation and work hard as teachers and as mentors and, and try to keep this collective inquiry moving. And I, I find that longer view, frankly, very inspiring, even though it, it involves stories of sometimes harrowing and sometimes not such great people or people making not such great decisions. But overall, when I take a longer view, I do see it, it is very much a kind of storytelling adventure, uh, this, this quest to learn about the world. The quantum stories we tell ourselves. When I first heard the title of David Kaiser's book, How Hippies Saved Physics, I knew I had to read it for these episodes. Because if Mundy wanted to set us off on a journey to find out about quantum, we should really go back and trace its almost 100-year journey since its discovery. And if it is a kind of magic, or a way of understanding the world and universe, just how did it come to be discovered in the first place? Because it seems like it's pretty far out there in a way, not very intuitive. But at the same time, it's also a really human disposition to try and explain things that can't be explained. Featuring David Kaiser, who's professor of the history of science and of physics at MIT, this is episode 10 of the second season of The Life Cycle, Some Quantum Stories. The Life Cycle, a podcast about the future of humanity. David Kaiser is an excellent storyteller himself and extremely well-placed to tell the history of quantum physics because he's also a physicist. His book from 2012, How the Hippies Saved Physics, tells how a crucible of time and place led to a massive series of jumps in understanding and how iconoclasts and free thinkers were willing to push the boat out when it came to science and its applied uses. I started off by asking him to paint the picture, as it were, of where quantum physics came from in the very first instance. Sure, you know, I, I'd be happy to. So, you know, it's true that um, what the what we now recognize as quantum theory really coalesced um, over the first quarters of the 20th century, really roughly between 1900, 1925, 26, in round numbers. Of course, there was more work to be done, but it's really an amazing um, fervent of activity during those first roughly 25 years of the 20th century, which, as we know, were quite dramatic times in, in Europe and elsewhere. And a lot of the work that we look back on was indeed being done by people based uh, throughout um, Europe, including um, uh, Britain. Uh, not exclusively, there were certainly people who were doing important work who were who had come from the United States, who'd come from Japan, who'd come from actually quite further afield. Uh, many of them in that period went to study and work in Europe. So Europe was still, in some sense, a central place for working it out, even though it involved people from re- genuinely a worldwide community. The other thing that, that I find really fascinating looking back on that era is that the folks who were cobbling together quantum theory, most of them knew each other, and they knew each other actually pretty well. It wasn't a huge community yet. 
It was several dozen people whom we might recognize in hindsight as the kind of core group. Again, many, many more folks were, were contributing something. But the really central figures who did most of the work that we now celebrate in our textbooks and work hard to study and, and learn ourselves, that really was not a huge group uh, in, that, in those early years. And they did tend to know each other. They tended to study with each other. They tended to visit each other you know, by rail. They would trade tens of thousands of letters when they weren't sitting side by side or taking walks you know, uh, together. So they were, it was a community that, that really, the, the inner circles of whom really knew each other well. Um, and that, that, that doesn't mean they always got along. Sometimes they, they, they knew each other so well that they had fights all the time. But the point is they really knew each other face to face. Uh, and that starts to change uh, over later decades uh, as the community itself grew, as the disruptions in Central Europe especially really um, thrust many of these folks further away from those uh, close-knit geographical regions. It's worth jumping in here and to name some of this inner circle. For the first 25 years of the 20th century, traditional physics was questioned by what would become known as old quantum theory. Max Planck, Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, Arnold Sommerfeld and many others all produced work that questioned the ability of traditional physics to account for reality. By 1925, Werner Heisenberg and Niels Bohr proposed a new interpretation of quantum mechanics, because there are more than one, and it became a core field in the area. It was dubbed the Copenhagen interpretation, because that's where Heisenberg was based at the time. Perhaps somewhat fittingly for a quantum group, if you look on Wikipedia, you'll read there is no definitive historical statement of what the Copenhagen interpretation is. The people that are associated with it disagreed on a number of things. They didn't call themselves the Copenhagen interpretation. They were more grouped together as that by outsiders, maybe for convenience. Some things that are characteristic about it, we saw in episode nine, including how intrinsically indeterministic everything is the importance of measurements and the principle of complementarity, which states that objects have certain pairs of complementary properties that cannot all be observed or measured simultaneously. And what Professor Kaiser really drives home is the philosophical nature that led to and fed the entire quantum project. This is something that would get lost initially when the center of gravity changed from Europe before World War II to the United States in a post-World War II era. That's right. And I should go back and say, I, you know, going back to those earlier years in the 19 teens and 20s uh, and even into the 30s, uh, you were asking, was there a kind of philosophical style of research? And I think there really was not for every single person. You can find a range or a spectrum even then, which is healthy. You need that in a healthy scientific community, a range of perspectives. But certainly many of the folks whose names we still rightly remember and celebrate as some of the most important contributors to quantum theory or modern physics more broadly, they really many of them thought of themselves as doing, as, as part of their job was to be philosophically minded. That that was what they valued as part of their role of being talented physicists. Of course, they had to be very good at mathematics. They had to be creative in, in manipulating equations. But for many of them, they thought that wasn't enough. It wasn't, that wouldn't suffice. And they had, many of them had been raised studying philosophy, even as high school students in these very elite gymnasia and so on. They'd studied you know, uh, traditions in German idealistic philosophy from really their teenage years. This was, a, this was in some sense, a, a native, you know, uh, a kind of familiar mode of inquiry. Uh, Einstein was deeply taken with Immanuel Kant as a young person and then had a reading club for fun with some of his college buddies, reading the works of, of the Viennese uh, philosopher Ernst Mach. 
Niels Bohr, who was uh, raised in Copenhagen, came from an academic family. He was immensely uh, you know, influenced by a mentor who was another a neo-Kantian philosopher. Wolfgang, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Werner Heisenberg uh, was the son of a classics professor and uh, recalls reading, you know, Plato's Timaeus on a rooftop. I mean, these people really, th they thought part of their job was to bring a kind of an overt philosophical investigation to their efforts to understand nature. This echoes what we were talking about back in the pub in London with Mundy. Philosophy might not be the same as magic, but to understand the makeup of reality, to be able to weave the story of the physical world, as it were, you quickly come up against the big metaphysical questions. Bohr and Heisenberg, for their part, and their uncertainty principle was, in a sense, the end of determinism. The uncertainty principle, which, for a little reminder, was uh, outlined in the last episode, episode 9, states that the more precisely the position of some particle is determined, the less precisely its momentum can be predicted from initial conditions, and vice versa. This shattered the clockwork universe that Newtonian physics promised. And it was part of Einstein and Schrodinger's initial beef with quantum mechanics. But this more philosophical aspect to it all didn't really survive in America, at least not at first. Professor Kaiser told me how the Second World War changed priorities. When we get into a very different era, the years soon after the Second World War, especially in the United States, when physics was now unbelievably popular as a topic of study, in the way it had never had been, even in Europe, certainly never in the United States, it became one of the most popular subjects for young people to study, partly because of the dramas at the end of the Second World War. Uh, the, what looked to many people at the time was celebrated uh, as the kind of road to victory with physicists leading the development of things like nuclear weapons. In the, in the decades since then, historians and scientists have reevaluated some of those claims, but certainly at the time, it looked like physicists built the bomb and the bomb ended the war. As they, each of those claims has, has been, uh, let's just say, more complicated now. But at the time, that seemed like such an, a, a straightforward equation. And young people were flocking to physics and other areas of, uh, of engineering in record numbers in the United States. The universities were expanding exponentially quickly. It was physics done in, in a different mode. Or maybe I, I to say the range of kind of what looked like reasonable approaches had, had sort of shrunk. So it wasn't that they were doing un unimaginative physics, but they, many, many folks in the United States um, stopped valuing the kind of philosophical engagement that had seemed so important, really not so earlier before. It wasn't like it had been 100 years that had gone by. It had been maybe 15 years. It wasn't such a big change. And yet suddenly the style of what counted as really valuable or what was valued in physics especially in the United States, in, in the face of these booming, booming enrollments, people teaching, uh, you know, auditoria full of physics students at a time and not small seminars, uh, that really changed what seemed um, important, what seemed teachable. How do you have debates about, you know, neo-Kantian philosophy with 300 students at a time? It's pretty hard. And so, I, again, I want to say it wasn't sort of good versus bad physics, but it was certainly a, a, a pretty dramatic shift in style. And you can see that in uh, textbooks, in homework assignments assigned to PhD students, in the nature of the papers they publish in the journals, uh, a, a pretty dramatic shift over a pretty short time span to become this kind of pragmatic, almost anti-philosophical approach to, to push, uh, push through the equations and, as many of them used to say, get the numbers out. Um, yeah. or, or another popular phrase was shut up and calculate, which was, you know, maybe no one ever really said that, but that seemed to capture sort of the, the ethos of the time. So this was a really good time to study physics. There were many enrollments and there was exponential growth in its popularity. 
But by the late 1960s, there was a reversal of fortune for physics. And at the same time, there was the rise of the counterculture and the youth movement. There were also protests against the Vietnam War draft. And students were not excused from the draft, right? They had to fight in the army. Yeah, and funding was turned from open-ended, like unclassifiable research that had been in place ever since World War II to kind of way more Pacific, weapon-oriented research. And as we saw in episode three, getting there with regard to space and ballistic rockets, there had been, or was at the time, a growing relationship between the military-industrial complex and scientists. So there was a strong reaction against the presence of the military on U.S. campuses because they were influencing what departments were researching. By the 1970s, there's less money to go around. And Kaiser points out that there was a space again to start thinking about new ways to, you know, relate to and reflect upon nature. Departments were smaller in size, classes were much smaller, and they kind of began to reflect the 1930s style of teaching and philosophical musings that you had earlier in Europe. You have a bunch of students and faculty who don't want to work on projects that have even um, even an association with, with these um, worldly affairs like nuclear physics. A lot of research in nuclear physics had nothing to do with weapons, but even that whole topic, some people said, I want to get as far from that as possible. I want to dream of, of, of celestial, I want to think of of relativity and, and, and the solar system and the galaxies. I want to think about the deepest mysteries of quantum theory, topics that had really been kind of pushed to the sidelines through much of the 1950s and 60s. And so the topics that somehow uh, garner attention start to shift, the environment in which these young people are going to study it has shifted. Um, and and you, you see a kind of opening up again or a broadening of what seem like they might be um, legitimate value, legitimate uh, uh, styles for trying to, to learn about you know, the natural world. At this point, I wanted Professor Kaiser to tell one of the stories that he's so good at delivering to help explain this new shift in research and how the spirit of the age led to some pretty weird uses of quantum mechanics. How weird? Is this where the hippies come in? Well, more like spies at this stage, like the CIA rather than hippies. Because uh, actually the hippies in the title is a bit of a misnomer. Although there are definitely some free-spirited and new age actors in the pages of the book. This particular story, however, showed that kind of hippie thinking pervaded, you know, not just society at the time, but also the military industrial complex. And it takes place at the Stanford Research Institute, which is, um, was located and still is located in Menlo Park in California. It's the research and development agency that works for a lot of companies throughout the years and government agencies. And actually, one example of its work is, if you recall, episode two, we talked about how Walt Disney, you know, used Werner von Braun to to create the Tomorrowland section in his new park. Uh, yeah, the original Disneyland in California. Yeah, and it exactly uh, it that opened in in the 1950s. Well, it was the Stanford Research Institute that chose that location after it was commissioned by by Disney to find the best spot, and they've done a they've done a bunch of stuff. Uh, Siri on on Apple was in, was an invention of a company that was created by the SRI, which they later sold to Apple, and also Yuri Geller was even brought there in 1972 to 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 conduct some of his uh, out there thinking. But anyway. The CIA were worried at the time that the Soviets were way ahead in the field of mind control. And so inspired by quantum non-locality, they wanted to conduct remote viewing experiments. I asked Professor Kaiser to tell me the story. 
Yeah, no, I, I'd be glad to. It's, it's really, it's one of these moments where you, where you have to stand back and say, was that, was that really going on behind the scenes? And it, it really was. And so uh, exactly as you say, uh, by the uh, late 1960s and, and, and accelerating it throughout the 1970s, there was a concern among at least some um, uh, experts within the U.S. military uh, that the Soviets were somehow much more advanced than the United States was on on topics like mind reading, let alone mind control, what things that are often called parapsychology and, or ESP and so on. Uh, and now I want to be careful to say I'm not endorsing that view. I'm saying there it was. It is now well documented through things like Freedom of, of the Information Act and you know once once classified studies we now know some more about that that there was at least some you know interest and frankly some real investment with with real money behind it. Uh, uh, if you adjust for inflation, it looks like you know budgets in the millions of dollars, uh, not billions but millions, you know substantial money. Uh, around trying to really um, accelerate U.S.-based efforts in in things like uh, extrasensory perception or mind reading or these um, uh, non-standard topics, I'll call them again. Without I'm certainly not endorsing them myself. Um, and so one of the things that happened was uh, the, the representatives from the CIA and also from the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is a similar version. In the U.S. has many similar you know uh, agencies. Sometimes they compete with each other. So each of these groups, as it turns out got involved uh, in trying to, to support a kind of accelerated program in basically mind reading uh, or, or reading minds at a distance. And some of the folks I was writing about in, in this book uh, were trained in physics. They had PhDs often from very, very elite programs in physics, uh, but they, had, uh, they, they sort of entered the field just as the bottom fell out, just as funding dried up from more traditional sources, as, jo as traditional academic jobs were, were very, very, very hard to, to, to find. And so they kind of banded together and made a kind of informal discussion group uh, in Berkeley, California, to talk about all kinds of things that they had found squeezed out of their own training when they were uh, young students in physics, including PhD students. Things like, how do we make sense of these strange equations of quantum theory? And for some of them, not all, but for some of them, they were curious or certainly open to a wider range of new age or countercultural ideas like, Maybe ESP is real, and maybe we can explain it using quantum theory, not just observe it, but maybe even account for it. If we're going to be good empirical scientists, some of them said, then let's conduct our own experiments and come up with our best uh, you know, scientific explanations. So that really captured the imagination of some members of this uh, kind of ragtag group who were basically, frankly, down on their luck. Uh, PhDs from, from great programs and not traditional scientific careers um, to, to march into next. And so... Some of them basically got hooked up with uh, CIA or DIA-related uh, funding to help do uh, these so-called remote viewing experiments, just as you said. And the idea was, could maybe not every person, but maybe some people are especially susceptible, especially, especially capable of, of, of essentially receiving you know, mental imagery or, or some kind of messaging from, 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 from another mind far away. Uh, and that's what was called remote experiments. And so the idea was one person would sit in a darkened room uh, with, you know, helpers sort of noting down what they say they see or, or think about in their mind, while another person went around the Bay Area and sort of looked very intently at various landmarks. There's a famous clock tower in the campus of the University of California, Berkeley. There are, you know, benches in, in parks near, Golden, near the Golden Gate Bridge. And so this was being done on the kind of, you know, in, in uh, sometimes highly classified forms on, with taxpayer dollars to see, could one 
uh, exploit basically long-distance espionage. And the idea, you can see why this might have appeal to the CIA or the Pentagon during uh, this very scary Cold War moment. Uh, what if once someone could get signals from what the Soviets were doing at some highly classified research center, you know, uh, behind um, their their uh, borders? Could one somehow, uh, uh, could, could CIA trained field agents do espionage at a distance? So needless to say, the experiments weren't all that successful, although sometimes people did seem to draw a similar picture to the places the subjects were sat looking at for hours on end. That sounds fun. Maybe we should do that once. Yeah. <laughs> you could sit somewhere you could sit somewhere in London and then I would think about what you're looking at. Yeah. Uh, it would be a fun way to spend an afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's cool that the CIA was inspired by quantum mechanics. Yeah, it kind of was the age of trying anything to get one over on the enemy, um, I guess. Kind of like flying to the moon or developing LSD. Um, there was a lot going on between between the, the, the two superpowers. But this led uh, Professor Kaiser to get very excited about one of your quantum uh, friends, uh, Ava, entanglement. And Yay. I, <laughs> and I love the way he, he goes on to talk about it. Um, and so, uh, so part of what attracted some of the physicists I was writing about, not all, but certainly some of them, was that they thought this might not only be rep replicatable, this might be a phenomenon that people could really do, at least some people, but they thought they could explain it uh, using quantum theory. And this gets to one of the most delicious counterintuitive concepts at the heart of quantum theory that I still just love and I still pursue both uh, in my physics research and, and as an historian. It's a notion called quantum entanglement. So what Einstein himself helped to clarify as a concept, ultimately to reject it. Same with, uh, similar with Aaron Schrodinger, some of the giants of quantum theory, elucidated this notion even back in the 1930s. And it's, it wound up striking both them and frankly many of their colleagues as just, just too strange to be true. Einstein famously dismissed it as spooky action at a distance. That this is, this is maybe what the equations predict, but that can't be right. That can't be how the world works. And that's part of what energized this group many decades later, uh, uh, kind of underemployed physicists in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. They were just mesmerized by this concept of entanglement at a time when very few other physicists were paying attention to it. And they thought if entanglement as described by quantum theory were real, could that open up still other more, more strange sounding phenomena? Entanglement sounds pretty strange on its own. If we take that seriously, where else might it lead us? Could it actually account for things like correlated brain waves among humans across great distance. The idea behind quantum entanglement is that pairs of particles, at least if they're prepared a special way, should show really strongly correlated behaviors, even if they're arbitrarily far apart. And that's what really made Einstein so uncomfortable. You know, what, what we mostly remember Einstein for in physics is his gorgeous theories of relativity. And relativity is really all about Local causes yield local effects. If we had to boil down relativity, it's local, local, local. You change something here, it's going to take some time for some influence uh, to, to, to move through space before somewhere else uh, could be affected by it. That's, in some sense, the heart of relativity. And quantum entanglement at least seemed to be in tension with that. And that's what Einstein himself began to recognize and made him so uncomfortable about quantum theory more generally. Well, these folks in the 70s came, came to it with maybe a more open mind and said, you know, maybe entanglement, uh, as described by quantum theory, is how the world works. In fact, one member of this group, who was a much more agnostic on the mind-reading stuff, but was, was enamored of entanglement, a physicist named John Clauser, conducted with, it, with a partner, uh, Stuart Friedman, 
the first ever real laboratory experiment to try to see is entanglement happening in the world as described by quantum theory or would a more Einstein-like theory um, uh, account for the data? So this group was, was, it was you know, eyeballs, uh, up to their eyeballs in thinking about quantum entanglement. And some of them thought, if entanglement really is a feature of the world, as these new experiments seemed really to, to lend more evidence toward, then maybe some quantum particle lands in the mind of, you know, one person sitting in a darkened room that's entangled with some particle that's in the mind of the distant um, uh, viewer and so on. So they were, some of them at least, wanted to push the implications of entanglement as far as they could. At a time when, when entanglement in general, or even the broader kind of philosophical interpretation of quantum theory more generally, this was still kind of on the outs for, for mainstream physics. And they were among the kind of early adopters saying this stuff is fascinating, it's important, and it could lead to even more interesting questions. So you heard just earlier uh, Professor Kaiser mentioned the names John Clauser and Stuart Friedman. And as we mentioned at the end of episode 9, in 2022, the Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded to John Clauser, along with the French physicist Alain Aspect and Austrian physicist Anton Zeilinger. And we can take some solace, Eva, eh, from this John Clauser. Oh yeah? Why is that? Because after he got the phone call from Stockholm, he gave an interview to his local newspaper, the Mercury News, and I read this, and in it he admits that he initially found quantum mechanics to be extremely daunting, even though uh, he was going to go on and spend his life working in the field, and he had to repeat the course in advanced quantum mechanics, get this, three times before he passed. <laughs> I don't blame him. No, to be honest with you, right now, neither do I. Uh, but anyway, Clauser appears a lot in Professor Kaiser's book, and he really does seem to be a great physicist and part of this group that um, that David Kaiser's talking about. These early adopters uh, who were prepared to try and chart entanglement. Indeed, the Nobel Committee awarded the prize in 2022 for this very work, and I quote, they gave it to him for experiments with entangled photons, establishing the violation of Bell's inequalities and pioneering quantum information science. The violation of Bell's inequalities? What's that? I don't like the sound of it. Neither do I. Professor Kaiser paints a picture of how great John Bell was. John Bell was really just an extraordinary physicist um, of this sort of post-war generation. So he was, you know, a generation younger than the Einsteins and Schrodingers of the world. He was taught by members of their, of their generation. So Bell was really coming of age in the 40s and 50s as a young physics student himself. He was originally from Northern Ireland, I believe from Belfast. He made most of his career at CERN. Uh, he, he, he uh, as a very young student, got also puzzled, uh, really grabbed by some of these broader philosophical kind of what, what does it all mean questions that quantum theory was had been inspiring again in, 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 in the earlier generation. Bell was was really just dissatisfied with the kind of pat responses that he tended to get to these deeper questions when he'd asked his physics teachers, you know, but what if we take these equations of quantum theory seriously, uh, what how do we make sense of them in a, in, a, in a more interpretive vein? And he was basically told, as many people in that generation were, you're going to ruin your career. It, rather than saying, here's the answer you're looking for, it's like, that's just not real physics anymore, right? It was, was as a paraphrase, at least, of the way that Bell himself remembered it many years later. And again, there's much evidence that that was the prevailing attitude uh, during the sort of 50s and 60s era. So he followed good advice. He became a, a, a very accomplished physicist in more mainstream topics in high energy particle physics and nuclear physics. That's partly why he wound up spending so much of his time at CERN doing really important work in, in what we would call you know, a, a mainstream uh, particle physics. Many things for which he's still remembered even there. 
And yet he kind of nursed this, this side interest, a kind of hobby that really stretched from his undergraduate days about how to make sense of quantum theory in a deeper uh, interpretive or philosophical way. And it was in the midst of some of those thinkings in the mid-1960s, really on his own, when he came up with what we now call Bell's theorem in his honor, or, or, or more specifically, these Bell tests that, that he really devised in a, in a brilliant, brilliant uh, imaginative leap. So he wrote this paper late in 1964. He was actually on sabbatical and traveling around the United States uh, and, and, and was, was so self-conscious that this paper was so outside the mainstream that he, he, didn't, he sent it to a strange or a little-known journal that didn't charge what were called page fees, because most journals then would charge authors to, pay, to, to get their work published. And Bell didn't want to ask his U.S. hosts to even pay their fairly modest fees, because they figured this would be a, a, look like a nonsense paper. So it, that's how much on the outsets was as late as 1964, when he published this, this paper that now is just an absolute landmark of, of modern physics. And everyone has to know this paper. We, we rightly return to it all the time. So, so again, just a marker of how, how on the outs this work seemed at the time. So Bell realized that there should be a way to, 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 to empirically distinguish predictions from quantum theory compared to a more Einstein-like model where only local causes yield local effects by preparing pairs of particles in a certain way and then conducting measurements on each particle at, at some distance from each other and measuring, um, a, a performing a range of types of measurements and not telling the, your partner what measurement you happens to perform. So there should be an element of a kind of randomness of what particular property one person chooses to measure on one side compared to what the partner measures far away. Then you bring both kind of log books back together and look at how often the measurements lined up. So uh, to, to be just a little more concrete, you ask in a sense a series of yes, no questions. So you can compare the answers, even if the questions were different. So if, if I ask you, you know, do you like ice cream sundaes or frozen yogurt? If I ask you, you know, do you, do you like um, ice cream sundaes? You can say yes. If I ask you, do you like chocolate chip cookies? You can say yes or no. I can compare how often you said yes or no, even though you were asked different questions than your partner. And that's what becomes actually really important. So you can, you can compare the answers, even as different questions were posed, which is like saying different properties were measured of, of, uh, on each member of this pair of particles. And if, they're, if those particles are really um, behaving as quantum theory says they should, if they're genuinely entangled, then their answers should line up even when they're asked um, a, a, a range of distinct questions. Their behaviors are so strongly correlated, they behave in such a, such a, a kind of lockstep way that their answers should line up more often than, would, than chance, uh, as if there were some uh, immediacy helping to line up uh, their answers, some kind of something that did not seem to obey Einstein's strict uh, stricture, say, on, on local causes and local effects. So Bell said, I don't know if that's what will happen. That's what I, quantum theory predicts must happen. And now there's a clear way to distinguish that from, from the predictions of, of rival theory. So we call these Bell tests. People have now conducted Bell tests for literally 50 years. The first one I mentioned by John Clauser and Superfeven was done 50 years ago. Uh, and there have been dozens and dozens and dozens of experiments since then. Many types of physical particles, many types of properties, many types of detectors. Every published result has been consistent with quantum theory. They, every result rejects the kind of Einstein-like predictions uh, to high statistical accuracy. Um, and yet each of these experiments has so far been open to these kind of loopholes, these logical little puzzles by which a really earnest Einsteinian, had any, were, were any left, a really earnest follower of Einstein's quite plausible ideas 
um, could say, oh, well, I can explain why your experiments find those results. The world doesn't uh, uh, evolve according to quantum theory. The world really obeys an Einstein-like theory. And there's some extra thing you've left out or failed to shield against in your experiment. There's some way in which information could have leaked through uh, without having to, you know, to, to invoke this, this funny notion of quantum entanglement. So that's what led my colleagues and I to try to do this kind of supersized experiment. We called it a cosmic bell test in Bell's honor. And the idea that in, in brief is that the decision of what measurements to perform, what questions to ask of each member of this entangled pair would be set not by something kind of local to our laboratory that could have been correlated with who knows what. There could have been all kinds of uh, unnoticed ways in which information could have flowed before we even turned on our experiment. But rather, the choice of what measurements to perform was outsourced to the universe itself. We decided to turn the universe itself into a pair of random number generators. So we performed real-time measurements of light from a very distant galaxy in one direction of the sky on one side, and at the same moment, light from a very distant galaxy on the opposite side of the sky. Light that had been traveling toward the Earth for most of the history of the universe, almost stretching back to the time of the Big Bang itself. So that the light, the, what was happening at that galaxy over there, hadn't had time yet to talk to, to share any information, either with our experiment on the ground or with the, with the very distant galaxy on the opposite side of the sky, since, since really almost since the time of the Big Bang, pushed it back uh, about, um, well, about, about 8 billion years uh, in, in one of the experiments we wound up doing out of a 14 billion year old universe. And so the idea was to say, can we shield against an Einstein-like mechanism, a kind of local causes kind of explanation, while still trying to test for whether the quantum theory predictions hold up? And they held up absolutely beautifully, stunningly beautifully. The measurements on these entangled particles on the ground, actually on this beautiful mountaintop observatory uh, in the Canary Islands, the measurements showed exactly the correlations, the patterns that quantum theory predicts while having shielded against these kind of local or Einstein-like explanations that could have accounted for those for that correlated behavior by saying, oh, you overlooked the fact that something happened, you know, 10 days ago or 10 minutes ago. To, to, to do that for our experiments, you say, you'd have to see something set this, this, these correlations in motion, you know, 8 billion years ago on a galaxy far, far away. And that's still logically possible, but it's a lot different than what had been available before. Wow, that's actually really kind of cool. Yeah, it's fascinating how much quantum is really actually about measurement, how we can hope to measure the world and the material matter of nature. I really enjoyed talking to Professor Kaiser because even if I still find it really hard to get a grip of many aspects of quantum physics, his examples and stories elucidate many parts of it for me. And, you know, it was also just kind of entertaining, if I'm honest. And so to finish, I asked him, you know, where we can see quantum in our everyday life. Does it have, you know, many practical or applied uses? So one way I'd say is many, many of us, meaning a, a significant fraction of all the people on Earth, not everyone, but a large fraction now, we're benefiting from this research every day when we think about things like GPS and our cell phones and navigation. So people, these GPS system relies on basically what we call atomic clocks or atomic frequency standards. That doesn't require entanglement, it requires an incredible, you know, near century of, of development in both physics and, and engineering to understand the very subtle, basically quantum vibrations of certain atoms that lets us make some of the most precise clocks manageable. We, we need those that level of kind of near nanosecond or tens of nanoseconds accuracy, which we get because we understand quantum theory and how certain atoms behave. So in some sense, 
It's here already. It's in our pockets or in many of our pockets with smartphones and GPS and all the rest. So I want to be clear that we've, we've benefited all, time and time again, even frankly, just the idea of consumer electronics and transistors. I mean, some of the most important steps there were really thinking hard about the quantum theory of, uh, of how these little, little bits of matter behave. And one that you mentioned would be quantum encryption, another that maybe is maybe not quite so close by, but maybe still uh, uh, in our future, would be something like quantum computation, quantum computing. With quantum encryption, now we've gotten to pretty impressive kind of real world beta tests. It's not quite that we're all relying on that, on that in our pockets. We're doing other forms of encryption when we purchase things on the internet or, or send emails that don't rely on quantum entanglement. But there have been pretty stunning demonstrations that quantum entanglement is getting closer to, to, you know, to, re, to, to real world use, including transcontinental quantum encrypted video chats. You and I are chatting across continents using uh, a, a video chat, but not protected by quantum encryption. And so we come to the end of this little introductory foray into the weird and goddamn difficult world of quantum physics, conducted in many, in large part, thanks to one such quantum encrypted video chat. We did it. Will I remember any of this, Ava, down the road in like maybe two weeks time, two days time? Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. You can just listen back to the episodes. Just play them, you know, while you're asleep. Mm, they can enter my, my dreams. Your dreams. Play. Quantum nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> a very special quantum thank you to all of you for listening. Thanks also to Professor David Kaiser for the conversation and chat. This episode was written and produced by John Holton with additional writing by myself, Ava Kelly. Sound editing and design was by David Magnuson. Mundi Vandi is our executive producer, and he also created the artwork for this episode in collaboration with Midjourney. Additional research and script supervision and fact-checking was by Savita Joshi. Follow us on social media and subscribe for more wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. And please reach out to us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can also try and do so with your mind. <laughs> <laughs>